Well, this morning we have a chance to come back um, and look again at another of these issues. We have been in a series that we've been calling What Matters in an effort to get to the most important issues that face the church and face Faith Community Church. We have looked at gospel matters and leadership matters and church matters, prayer matters, missions matters. And today we are coming to the issue of worship and looking at worship matters. While each of those uh, things that we've had opportunity to look at over the past couple of weeks are important in their own right, certainly have importance for us, our topic today, the issue of worship, stands apart from all of them because it is the one matter with which we will have our hearts and minds taken up, not only now, but for all eternity. Worship matters because it is the whole purpose for which you and I were created and the whole purpose and end to which we're headed for all eternity. Created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, it is our supreme duty and our highest joy now and when we're together with Him. So we are called to that. We're called to that in this life. We're called to that in the millennial kingdom. We're called to that in the eternal state. We're called to that as a very fundamental uh, uh, element, you might say, of our whole existence, our whole being. Our focus, all of our days to be on the worship of the Lord. In fact, Paul makes this uh, claim in Romans 12.1 that our life is to be wrapped up with this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul uses this language of worship and he uses it in this comprehensive manner to say that your entire body, meaning really your whole life, your whole existence, is to be offered up to God as one spiritual act of worship. He's drawing, of course, on the images of the Old Testament sacrifice when people would lay animals on an altar and and slaughter them to symbolize the, the need for penalty over their sin. And, uh, and, and giving to God at the same time what He is worthy of in terms of our adoration, our affection, our devotion. All of those things symbolized whether through the slaughter of goats or the pouring out of wine or the offering of grains. All kinds of sacrifices that were put on the altar to symbolize all of those things. Paul is calling on us to give a living sacrifice. A, a, a one that involves not just our... Sunday morning, but one that involves the entirety of our life, the whole of our being and our living, the whole of our mind and affections. This was true always, even in the Old Testament. Whenever a worshiper came, he was supposed to understand that when he was presenting something on the altar, it was symbolic, symbolic of himself, symbolic of uh, of his own sin and, and the, 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 the sacrifice, the slaughter of the animal would be symbolic of what he deserved under God's wrath, but it would be appeased, God's wrath would, uh, during that time. Or it was symbolic of his, of his uh, desires for fruitfulness and for a good harvest, is symbolic of even sometimes the prayers that he offered up and the kind of incense that was raised up before God. It was symbolic of all those things, but it was not just symbolic. It was supposed to be representative. He was uh, supposed to be not just putting some element on the altar. He was supposed to be putting himself there. That's why David writes in Psalm 40, in sacrifice and offering, you do not delight Burn offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book is written to me. I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. David is saying, Look, I understand what I'm doing when I come to this altar. What I'm doing is I'm not just putting an animal on that uh, altar. I am offering myself to do your will. 
in doing that, he defines true worship. He defines true worship. And he sets it apart from everything that goes under the name of worship. What you do this morning, you gather here, you stand, you sit, you sing, you listen, you do all those things. But if it is done without that heart that David spoke about, without that heart that Paul has spoken about, it is anything but true worship. It's important for us to understand this. This is the reason why you exist. This is the very thing that will carry you from here to the kingdom to the eternal state. It's the very thing, as, as uh, Mike read this morning, that will assuage and satisfy your thirsty soul. Putting on a, a heart and an attitude of worship is essential. It is important. Well, to do that, to remind ourselves of how to do that, to focus our attention deeply onto the important matters of worship, I want to turn our focus this morning to one central passage, maybe one of the central passages in the entirety of the Bible and certainly in the New Testament on worship, and it's John chapter 4, a well-known chapter related to Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. It's a passage which, like so many other in John's gospel, was sort of centered on the theme of who Jesus is, but it's also touching on a number of other subjects, one of which is the subject of worship. The identity of Jesus, we might say, is presented against the backdrop of this robust discussion on worship that Jesus engages in with this Samaritan woman. In fact, he uses the word worship 10 times in the first 24 verses of this chapter, obviously highlighting that that is a central theme. It's really a remarkable encounter. If you were to read straight through John in one sitting, you couldn't help but notice a kind of a contrast with a conversation that he had just had in chapter 3 of John with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the rulers of Israel. He was one of the council members. He was influential. He was educated, theologically trained. He was respected in, uh, in, throughout the community. He was orthodox. He was everything that probably every parent wanted their child to become within Israel. That was Nicodemus. Here Jesus encounters a different person, an unorthodox Samaritan, unschooled, uninfluential, ostracized, and outcast. And yet Jesus' message to these two people is remarkably similar, following the same kinds of themes driving home the same kinds of truths, as we'll see when we move throughout this passage. As I said, the first few verses, first 24 verses, kind of take up this theme. Verse 25, Jesus' conversation turns distinctly toward the issue of His identity. But before that, all of this is framed in this conversation about worship. And John, as he tells the story, you can't help but notice that there were a number of barriers in this woman's life. If Nicodemus was at the center and the heart of Israel's worship, if he was among the council and among the leaders within their spiritual elite, this woman was about as far away from that as you could get. And she had between her and what we might consider true worship all kinds of these barriers. And what you see as you progress through the passage is that Jesus is sort of uh, 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 overcoming and, and you might say thwarting each one of these barriers, breaking them down as he goes, as he brings this lady more and more into a correct understanding of what genuine, true worship is really all about. And I think what we find here 
or what the text reveals is five different barriers to true worship in this lady's life that had to be broken through in order to bring her to God. The first one, we might simply say, is prejudice. It's prejudice. And it, um, it has to do with the fact that she is a Samaritan. Listen as John opens up this passage and he says, uh, we read in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. John is framing it for us exactly what one of these barriers were, and it was this issue of prejudice. There were a number of racial, even social prejudices that stood in her way to hearing the truth about God and the truth about worship. Uh, To begin with, as we said, she was a a Samaritan, which is that area that stands between uh, Judea in the south and uh, Galilee in the north. And yet when Jews would travel to festivals, they had to pass through that area in order to go from Galilee down to Judea or Vice versa, here's Jesus going back north from Judea back up to Galilee after one of the festivals. And this was something that they did reluctantly as they traveled, trying their best to avoid any contact with the locals. That's because they looked at Samaritans as unclean people. They were the, re- the, the result of interbreeding between the Assyrians who had conquered the northern territory in 722 And rather than just obliterating the population, what they did is they sent some of their soldiers and some of their people back into Samaria to intermarry and intermingle with the remaining Jews who were there. And the result was a half-breed of people, not only racially, but even uh, religiously, as they uh, influenced the area. Uh, not just through the intermarriage, but through the intermingling of some of their ceremonies, so that the worship of these people in the north became polluted. In fact, when the southern kingdom went through its own exile and came back from Babylon, they immediately erupted into conflict with the Samaritans in the north who were trying to bring their distortions into the Jerusalem temple. And as a result of that, the Samaritans were excluded from the temple. You can read, read it in the book of, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were excluded from the worship in the temple. Their response was that they would build their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim, which is about halfway between Judea and, and Galilee. And they began to worship. They began to offer their sacrifices in this, in this uh, rogue temple, if you will, until... About 250 years later, about 150 years before the time of Christ, it was destroyed by soldiers from the south, which obviously just increased the kind of animosity between the two groups. So there was a lot of tension that was going on here. These Samaritans were despised, and they in turn despised the Jews, and they were generally avoiding one another. And yet, sometimes they would come into contact because this was the most direct pathway between the two Jewish areas of Israel. Josephus, the historian, even writes, he says, It was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city at the festivals to take their journeys through the country of Samaria, a trip that he says would take 
normally about three days. So here is Jesus on one of these trips, and he comes to a town called Sychar, which was not far from Mount Gerizim at all. And outside this town was this well-known well of Jacob that exists even today, I understand, 100 feet deep. It's really perhaps the deepest well in Israel and fed by an underground spring. And people would come from all around to fetch the water that was in the well for their homes and for their, for their livestock. Jesus takes his seat. John says it was about the sixth hour, six hours after sunrise, meaning this was high noon, right in the heat of the day, right in the middle of the day. And that's when this Samaritan woman comes to draw her water. Now, this is not typical. Women would not normally do this alone. If you read in the Old Testament, the number of instances where it talks about women going to wells, it's always in groups. They always come together in groups. So a woman wouldn't typically come alone, and she certainly wouldn't come in the middle of the day when the sun was at its apex and at its hottest because she had to lug that water back to wherever she came from, and she'd want to do it in the cool of the morning or in the evening. And so it's obvious that this woman is making some trip, perhaps intentionally, to avoid contact with other people indicating that she was some sort of social outcast, trying to avoid what might have been the public shame of interaction with others. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. He asks her for water, and she can't help herself but to respond with surprise. How in the world are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? She understood the prejudice. She understood the social conventions. She understood that this that Jesus was doing was not only uh, not normally practiced, it would have been disapproved by nearly all of his close peers. Even his disciples are surprised when they come back later on. But Jesus was disregarding all of that. He was ignoring that his fellow Jews would not have approved of talking to this lady. He was ignoring that they would not have approved of him even talking to a woman. He was ignoring the fact that she was probably a woman of low reputation. And for all those reasons, those traditional Orthodox mainstream Jews would have avoided this lady. And consequently, she would have been left to her own devices with very little opportunity to ever hear anything about the truth. No one would have ever engaged her in conversation. In fact, their assumption when they saw her in the street or in the marketplace, their assumption would have been that she's already under the judgment of God. That she's already turned her heart against God. Just look at her life. And there would have been very little attempt from any person to treat her as a real human being. She probably assumed it was for the best to get near any of these Jews or any other religious person would have just brought more criticism into her life, made her feel worse about her situation. So she was happy enough just to come draw her water and go home. But Jesus recognizes the first barrier to this woman's life is the prejudice that's against her from religious people. Now keep her, like so many others in society, who are living morally, morally questionable lives, She's kept at arm's length by those who may, in fact, know the truth. And because of that, she's kept at arm's length from any kind of true worship. The barrier of hearing the truth, because no one figured that she was worth the time or the effort, no one wanted to bear the burden of potentially tarnishing their own reputation by talking to her, essentially cut her off from what was most necessary in her life. Jesus broke through all that, though, and he began a simple conversation. And it led, ultimately, to a topic of the second barrier of worship, which is simply this. It is her daily pursuits. Her daily pursuits. We read in verse 10, after she questions him, Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, Tim, sir, you have nothing to draw with which to draw water and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She, uh, when she tries to bring up how unusual it is for him to talk to her, Jesus just bypasses all of that conversation and he immediately highlights that her need is not what she is pursuing. Or to say it another way, when she tries to bring up how unusual it is for Jesus to be talking to her and asking her for water, he immediately highlights that he's not only asking for something, he's offering something. He's offering her what he says in verse 10 is living water. Now that word has two meanings in the ancient world. It could be used in contrast to still water. Water that's living, in other words, was flowing water, active water. It was active in contrast to the pools or the ponds or even sometimes the wells where the water would fill up and just sort of sit there. Living water was flowing and consequently always flushing out whatever kind of impurities might be perceived to be there. And presumably in the hearts or minds of, uh, of the ancient world, this was healthier water because it, it wouldn't have as much opportunity for things to grow as they would in stagnant water. So when Jesus says, if you understood that I was able to give living water, then you would be saying to me, give me a drink. When she hears all that, she immediately assumes that Jesus is talking about this flowing water, as opposed to what might be found in the well. She's not really sure exactly where he's going to get it. She says, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? It's almost as if she's really not listening to what he's saying. He is talking about her needs, her spiritual needs. And she immediately associates whatever his religious focus is, whatever his spiritual talk is, she immediately connects it with her physical needs. She starts to imagine how nice it would be if someone would come along and give her some way where she doesn't have to lug those buckets or those skins back and forth in the heat of the day to this well uh, day after day with all of the monotony of that. She begins to imagine in what way this man could make her her material life better. And she asked him, look, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it and gave it to his sons, his ancestors, his livestock? Are you going to be able to provide a source of water that's better than what Jacob provided for us here? This thing's been here for hundreds of years. Can you do better than that? Jesus says, look, everyone who drinks of this, they're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. In fact, he'll have water welling up with inside of him. This woman says, give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty anymore and come here to draw the water. She can't get her mind off the circumstances. Jesus is trying to talk to her about inner needs, spiritual needs. We we might call immaterial needs. He's trying to talk to her about the real issues that are going on in her heart, and she can't get her mind off of the issues that are going on in her daily schedule. That is so often the problem of worship. It involves listening to the message of God. It involves 
taking our minds off of whatever the material, physical, immediate burden is in your particular life, the thing that is, that is putting pressure on you and is awaiting you when you wake up tomorrow morning or awaiting you when you go back home today, the thing that is in your mind become dominant and is dominating your, your schedule, your calendar, your, your uh, emotions or whatever it might be, you can't seem to stop thinking about solutions and answers for those concrete, visible things. You come to a service like this and someone leads you in worship, prompting you to sing about things that you haven't thought about in days, or someone comes and preaches to you and forces you to think about things that you can't visibly see, and it's so easy for you to just sort of check all of that off because you have other things on your mind right now. This is that lady. She is so focused on who's going to help her with the next bucket of water, where can she find something that's going to make her life less burdensome, less onerous, all the focus on these immediate physical needs. And here's someone trying to talk to her about spiritual needs, and she's not even prepared to listen. Well, Jesus is talking to her, and He's introducing her, not to some flowing stream of water. When He talks about living water, He's using it in a different sense. He's using it in the sense that it was used in the Old Testament. God would often speak to Israel about its spiritual drought. He spoke to Israel about their parched soul, their dried up soul. And he would speak to them about the futility of all of their efforts to address that. You remember in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Or Isaiah 12.3, God promises, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. Isaiah 44, I'll pour out water on a thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Or Isaiah 55, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. God frequently was using this issue of thirst or this image of thirst to try to communicate to Israel what their genuine needs were. They may have imagined that their needs were irrigation or maybe they imagined their needs were financial, taking care of the burdens, uh, the maybe financial mistakes that they had made that now burden their heart and mind and life all the time. And because of all those things, Israel turned off its, or turned its heart, I should say, away from God and completely ignored the spiritual needs. Focused on the external, the physical, the prosperity, the security, or whatever it might be. And Jesus is telling this lady, look, you have a thirst that you don't even realize is there. You have tried to quench it with all the wrong sources, but your deepest needs is not someone to bring you a bucket and dip into this well. Your deepest need is not to find some other stream. Your deepest need is to drink from the wells of salvation. And to do that, You're going to have to get past simply the questions of your daily pursuits. You're going to have to look to the issue of your heart, the eternal issues. That's probably why Jesus turns the conversation as he does beginning in verse 15 and highlights a third barrier that this lady had to true worship, and that is her problems. 
She was messed up. There's no other way to say it. She had a messy situation in her life. The woman said to, her, to Jesus in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is true. This was a messy situation. I mean, in any society, in any place, a woman who has gone through five marriages and now is living, or the man that she's living with is not her husband, she's living in immorality, it would have been a great cause of shame. And it's evidenced by how she responds. I mean, she responds with what could only be called evasiveness, when Jesus asks her to call her husband, she doesn't give the full picture. She says, look, I, I have no husband. And Jesus knows better than that. He is divine. And so he raises the issue. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Since this woman was so focused on her particular pursuit that day since she was so consumed with just getting through life just surviving another day another week just finding another bucket of water Jesus turns his focus beyond those things to the dry and dusty state of her relationships she is living in a kind of relational desert we don't know why she had five husbands, and we don't know for sure that they weren't all the result of widowhood, but we do know at least now that she's living in a state of immorality, and we presume, because of the way she answers the question, that that was what brought her other marriages to an end. She is a hot mess. And Jesus understands she's doing everything she can to keep this hidden. She doesn't want to bring it to light. She doesn't want anyone to see it. She doesn't want to interact with people who are going to question this. This happens sometimes when you fall into a state of chaos in your life, a state of chaos in your relationships. It happens whenever you make some big mistake. Rather than dealing with it and bringing it to the surface, you withdraw, assuming that a place of worship is the last place you want to be. The shame becomes overwhelming. The guilt becomes overwhelming. You don't know how to deal with it any longer in your heart and mind. You try to cover it up, but the more efforts that you make, it just gets more difficult with every turn. And so you retract and you withdraw further and further away from any genuine worship. That's where this woman was. And Jesus understood it. That's why he asked the question. He understood it. He understood that, that she had suppressed this and buried this and didn't want to talk about this and really didn't want to own up to it at all. He understood all of those things. That's why he asked the question. Because he wants to bring to the surface what her true needs are. Her true needs, the thirstiness of her soul, which she has tried to quench with relationship after relationship, and she has found it doesn't satisfy. You can see her difficulty in verse 19 as she abruptly changes the subject. She may have been trying to get the attention off of what was painful to talk about, or she may simply have just realized that Jesus has just spoken something that there's no way he could have ever known apart from supernatural insight. And it causes her to raise a question that has plagued her maybe for a long time and really exposes another barrier to 
her true worship which had been there, and that is her perceptions. Her perceptions. In verse 19, we read, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She's basically asking Jesus to answer this debate that had been around for centuries. I mean, who's right, really, about this whole question concerning worship? Uh, We think that it's on this mountain called Gerizim. You think that somehow you're obligated to worship in Jerusalem. And this might have been a sincere question. Perhaps behind all of this was her own disappointments with her own efforts at worship. She probably at some point in her life had been to the temple at Mount Gerizim, maybe a whole season of life, and she had gone and she had gone through the motions and she had gone through the rituals, and she ultimately decided that whatever she was doing wasn't working. And so maybe in the back of her mind she had seriously wondered if it's the location Maybe the Jews were right all along, and maybe I'm going to ask this guy. He seems to have some, some connection with God, and so I want to ask him, look, who's really right in this debate? In fact, that might have been the very reason why she perhaps gave up on worship. She saw the sort of the theological wrangling between Jews and Samaritans, and, and she couldn't answer the question herself, and she decided if they couldn't answer the question herself, what's the point? Why even bother? Why even go to worship at all? And so she had maybe even walked away for that reason. But once again, she's not getting it. And Jesus points it out to her, look, it's not about the outward setting. It's not about the location It's not about the rituals. It's not even really about the temple. People sometimes react that way. They they get into a place in their life where they're just not feeling it anymore. They're not sensing it anymore. And so they go looking for some other location, some other sort of set of traditions and some other experiences, thinking that that might correct the things that are wrong, some new rituals to follow. But all of this gives Jesus the opportunity to finally address the real issue. The real barriers to true worship in her life, and that is the prerequisites. The prerequisites of worship. He tells her in verse 22, he says, You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and And in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, he says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus finally tells her what it is that determines true worship. What it is that really brings someone into that place of worship with God. And he he explains it's not the location, it's, it's not about that mountain or in Jerusalem, or any of those things. It comes, we might say, with the self-revelation of God. What God was concerned about, what is necessary for true worship, He had already disclosed it to the Jews. Jesus affirms that. Salvation was given to the Jews, but even then, it wasn't related to their temple as they thought. And then He explains in verse 23, the hour is coming. Now, that's a phrase. When you are reading the Gospel of John and you read that word, hour, it's always related to the time of Christ's death on the cross. When he says to even his mother back in chapter 2, my hour hasn't arrived yet, he's referring to his crucifixion. And so Jesus is talking about the coming, the coming consummation of a covenant, the coming work that he will accomplish on the cross, the coming culmination of everything that he came to do in pouring out his blood and giving himself as an offering. And he says, look, the hour is coming and now is even here. In other words, it doesn't really matter chronologically where you are in relation to the cross. The cross is the central 
uh, event in the history of man that, that, that accommodates or creates this opportunity. But really, whether you are before the cross looking forward to it, or if you're after the cross looking back to it, the central issue, he says, is that worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I mean, this is where the whole discussion has been leading. This is where Jesus really wanted to get with, uh, get to with her. And this is where we realize that Jesus' message to this lady is the same message that he had for Nicodemus. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look back at chapter 3 and look at verse 3. When Nicodemus comes and speaks to Jesus... He recognizes that Jesus is from God, and Jesus answers him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he is as clueless as this Samaritan woman. He can't get his eyes off of the immediate physical things in front of him. He he doesn't understand. Jesus clarifies. Verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. He's he's talking to Nicodemus about how to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, this is what is necessary. You must be born of water and Spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? I mean, people have debated this. I think uh, there's probably at least nine different interpretations. A lot of people assume he's talking about baptism or something like that. But that's not what this is about at all. He is doing with Nicodemus the same thing he does with the woman at the well. He is expounding the Old Testament Scripture. He's restating what God had already said to Israel. In fact, look back with me at Ezekiel 36. Because you'll find there these images which had already been given to Israel. And this is just one place, by the way. There are others. But Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Listen to what God said to Israel. I'll take you from the nations... And gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here you have water and spirit. And God is telling Israel that both of them are needed. You need to be cleansed. That is to say your, your sins need to be wiped away. You need to be forgiven of all those things which are weighing you down that have you under the judgment of God and have separated you from Him. You need to be cleansed with water. And then you need the Spirit of God to be put with inside of you. You need God to send His Spirit into your heart and change your heart from some hardened and uh, rocky substance to something that is more permeable, something that is softer to God, something that's more like flesh and not like stone. You need God to do this work in you, Nicodemus. If you ever want to enter into the kingdom of God, this must happen. This is what God has always said must happen to Israel. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things, he says? Well, you fast forward to John chapter 4. And you realize, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman. Look, it doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem or in this temple. What matters, though, is that you hear the message of God that God's already revealed to the Jews. 
He's already disclosed himself. He's already made known to them that the necessary issue is that you relate to God in spirit and in truth. Or really, you might say it this way, that you relate to Him in a truly spiritual way. He says this is the case because, verse 24, God is spirit. Well, meaning that God, God doesn't exist in a visible form the way you and I exist in a visible form. God is not corporeal body. He's not flesh and blood like you and I are flesh and blood. He is essentially in His spirit. He is he, essentially in His person. He is spirit. That's why we talk about God being omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's not necessarily manifested in everything. That would be pantheism, where God is everything. God is every tree and every blade of grass. That's not what the Bible teaches. But God is everywhere, and yet He's not visible. And Paul calls Him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the invisible God. And so the idea is, if you want to be able to relate to God then you're going to have to relate to Him not through physical means, not through offering up lambs and goats and and things on an altar. If you want to be able to relate to God, you're going to have to relate to Him in spiritual means. You're going to have to relate to Him spiritually. That's why God is seeking those who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is how He's revealed Himself to the Jews. This is how He's revealed Himself in the Old Testament. He revealed Himself this way in Ezekiel. Even in Jeremiah, God uses similar terms. Uh, I'm going to give you a new covenant, not like the old covenant that I gave to your fathers, but this is the new covenant that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to forgive all of your sins, He says in Jeremiah 31. So God understood that in order for Israel to ever genuinely worship, that they had to have certain prerequisites. They had to have something happen that would make them or give them the capability to relate as a physical human being to relate to God who is spiritual. And the only way for you to do that is to have His Spirit within you. You've got to have God do this work. He's got to cleanse your heart and mind, cleanse your conscience, forgive all of your sins so that you're, you're presentable before Him. And He does that by the blood of the cross. Jesus, on the cross, stood in the place of every person who would ever believe in Him, took the wrath of God so that God's wrath would be appeased. And you who were formerly under the wrath would no longer be under God's wrath. Your sins would be forgiven. That's only half the equation though. You not only need your sins forgiven, but you've got to have God do something inside of your heart. That's what Jesus is telling this woman. You need to have this kind of work done if you're ever going to worship God. That's why so much that goes on throughout our world, it is filled with religious activities, it is filled with religious buildings, it is filled with all kinds of ceremonies and rituals. Some of them are formal, very formal. Some of them are, are highly uh, uh, painful and sacrificial. You go to Eastern religions and you see people just absolutely beating themselves and flagellating themselves and going through all these motions. You go into the Roman Catholic Church and you see people who are burning all these candles and bowing down to all of these idols and going through all these rituals. But even you go beyond that, you come into Protestant churches and you see big uh, uh, 
big warehouses or small little churches along the street and, and dotted all over the place and people are coming together and they're singing songs and they, they either have their smoke or they have their pipe organ or whatever it might be. And you have all this activity that's going on all over this place. And you might assume that there is a lot of worship taking place. But Jesus says, you know what, you can fill your life with all that stuff. But if you don't have these two things, it's not true worship. All that stuff taking place in the temple in Jerusalem, it's not true worship. All that stuff that goes on in the name of Christianity, if it doesn't have these two things, it's not true worship. You can gather a crowd... You can talk to them about their physical needs. You can tell them how to get another bucket of water home that day. You can tell them how to maybe have a little bit more peace in their home and a little better communication in their family and tell them how to be more successful at work. And you can tell them about about all those things that just are scratching the itch of whatever their pursuits might be. But if you never tell them that they're spiritually dry and dead and you never explain to them that they're under the wrath of God and need to be cleansed, then you never get them to the place where they have the prerequisites necessary for worship. Jesus is saying, look, it's not about a temple. It's not about a location. In fact, all that stuff that took place in the temple at that particular location, he says this, the hour is coming where neither in the temple nor here in Mount Gerizim will people worship. But they will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, all that stuff that used to take place in the temple now is to take place in your heart. In fact, look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 explains this as well as anywhere in the Scripture. It is a a chapter focused so much on worship. And the whole book really talking about how Jesus has come and presented a much better way of worship than anything that was formerly there. But notice in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Now, He's using images of the temple here. And He's saying, we're entering into the temple like people used to enter the temple. They would go beyond this curtain that was there that kind of separated the holy of holies, the inner room inside of the temple compound where the priest would go and offer up the, the uh, sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. We were always separated from that. But now we have been given a new way of entering into the presence of God. You know, in the Old Testament, when you read about the temple, the temple uh, was that place where God's Spirit dwelt. He was, if you read particularly with the camp of Israel, as they moved the camp around, moved the tabernacle around, and they had the Holy of Holies, the, the Spirit of God, which was represented by a pillar of fire at night or or a pillar of cloud during the day, whenever they settled the temple, that spirit, that, that physical manifestation of the spirit would come and rest on the temple, indicating that's where his spirit was. Now the writer of Hebrews says, you and I have a new way of connecting with the spirit of God. We do it through this living way that Jesus opened up to us through his blood. And since we have a great Priest, he says in verse 21, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, he he gets it. He understands. This is how you worship now. You worship having your hearts sprinkled. And that opens up the way for you to come to God in truth. You come to God in truth. 
Paul sort of completes the image for us in Romans chapter 12 whenever he says that you are presenting your body now as a living sacrifice. Everything that used to take place in the temple now takes place in your heart as you come to worship God. Whereas people used to get up, you know, uh, in the morning or whatever in Israel and they would go to the temple and they would, you know, ask themselves, you know, where is the lamb? Where is the bull? Where is the pigeon that I'm going to give? Uh, I've got to get ready to go worship God. When you get up, come to a place like this, your question, if you are worshiping in spirit and in truth, ought to be, what am I going to give? What part of my life have I not surrendered to the Lord? What part of my, what part of my week, what part of my schedule, what part of my day can I give to Him? I'm going to lay myself on that altar, my whole being, and I'm going to give myself to God afresh and anew. It's not the way people think about worship. They walk out, out of a place like this and they're going home and they're riding in the car and they say, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that today. Well, that's not the point. That's not the way you approach worship. You don't approach worship asking, what am I going to get out of it? You approach worship asking, what am I going to give? What am I going to give? That's true worship according to Jesus. Some of you who are here today, you don't know what true worship is. All you know is the kind of prejudice and the kind of problems that this lady had. You may not come very often to church because you're afraid what religious people think of you and it's kept you at arm's length and you've kept God at arm's length because of all that. And you've got issues. I mean, just be honest. You've got issues. And you're afraid that if you get too close, those issues are going to come to the surface and so they keep you back from God. Jesus is telling this woman, I've got water. It's water that will cleanse you, forgive you. It'll well up within you so that that thirst that you have will never be there again. Some of you have known that forgiveness. You have experienced it. God's cleansed your heart. He's put a new spirit within you, but you have fallen back to the same place where what dominates your mind is your routines. What dominates your mind is your pursuits. What dominates your thinking when you come to a place like this are false perceptions of worship. You think, if I'm going to sing and if I'm going to go through a few motions and God's going to be pleased. He's not pleased unless you come to Him in spirit and in truth, offering up yourself freely as a living sacrifice. Those are the kind of people He's seeking to worship Him. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, that's what You are seeking today. Here together with us and in our hearts, You have issued a call on our life. Your word has been clear. You have been seeking these kinds of worshipers who worship you not in a particular location, not even necessarily in a particular style, but they worship you from within. Or we were created for that reason. It is what should occupy our heart and mind now. It is what will occupy us around the throne. And we will never be so fit for our purpose as when we are doing that. So I pray, Father, that you would help us. Renew in us a fresh understanding of genuine, true worship. Help us to set aside whatever those temporal pursuits are that blind us to your call whatever the false perceptions are that have clouded our mind. And certainly we pray for those who are here today and have been separated from you because of whatever kind of prejudice that has been thrown up against them by hypocritical religious people. 
by whatever kind of problem has caused them so much shame. They've stayed back from you. Lord, we pray for them that they would open up their heart to you, confess their need, speak to you about the the parched condition of their soul and ask you to fill them with the fountain of living water. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.